Hello once again, everybody, and thank you for joining me here on this Monday, October 26th edition of ATS Radio. I'm your host, Adam Burke. I'll be flying solo today per listener request to talk about my college football power ratings, the adjustments that I made, and some overlays relative to the college football market here for week nine, but also with the World Series still going on. I'm going to finish up some thoughts on the World Series, some final thoughts on this 60-game regular season in an abbreviated version of the betters box. So we'll start with baseball. We'll finish with college football here on this edition of ATS radio. And of course we'll be on the next four days here. Brian blessing on Tuesday, Kyle Hunter, Wednesday, Brad powers, Thursday circa picks for week eight in the NFL coming up here on Friday. Like I mentioned a new Monday show here to talk about power ratings, overlays, some box score notes, mix in some MLB here today. Uh, again, that was by list and request. We had a lot of people reach out to us on Twitter, and you can follow me on Twitter at Skating Tripod saying, you know, I like the Monday show. It was nice to set up the week. Good to kind of recap what happened over the weekend. So still have to keep Kyle Hunter on Wednesdays. He needs to be able to play those totals as they release out there uh, in a lot of places around the market on Mondays. So I'll fly solo with a show. Usually the show will be quicker than today's is going to be because today talking a little bit of major league baseball as well, but probably looking at about 20 minutes or so, taking a look at my power ratings adjustments, my overlays relative to the market, some box score notes from what happened over the weekend, stuff like that. And then on Wednesday, that'll set us up to focus on some of the regression stats and just break down some more games with Kyle as we don't have to talk as much about power ratings and all of those types of things. Over at ATS.io, my updated college football power ratings for week nine have been posted. If you read those on Sunday evening, my apologies, but I missed that Wyoming quarterback Sean Chambers broke his leg over the weekend. Uh, Kyle Hunter mentioning that to me late last night, and I got the message here this morning. So did have to make an adjustment to Wyoming's power rating. Did update that over at ATS.io. So If you uh, read the article on Sunday night, you missed that update. That's in the Monday morning piece over there. Also, we'll be doing the opening line reports for college football and the NFL right when I finish editing and uploading this recording. And over at ATS.io, we talk about the top sportsbook promotions. We cover the Circa Sports Million and the Super Contest. Three and two for both of our entries in the Circa over the weekend. Uh, Cody Parkey will not be getting a Christmas card from me as that kept me from a four and one with him shanking that extra point uh, after the Browns took the lead. So should have went four and one went three and two. It is what it is, but we cover the circa and the super contest over at ATS.io and throughout the week, my colleagues putting together lots of picks and predictions, Alan Moody, Vincent Senek, Admir Algic, lots of stuff going on over there with some picks and predictions uh, from different sports betting markets around the world we cover industry news there are a few states that have sports betting on the ballot for the general election next tuesday so we'll be keeping an eye on those Uh, louisiana maryland and nebraska are the three that i know of and we'll keep digging to see if there's anything else going on out there but uh, we cover stuff like that too over at ats.io we really do cover everything so we encourage you to head on over there and check out all the work that we have last quick note here Eli from You Better You Bet asked if I want to be on the show again here tonight. So we'll be talking some World Series, probably a little bit of college football, maybe some NFL tonight on You Better You Bet at 7 p.m. Eastern time. I'll share that link when it gets posted to social media out there. But 
Still a very busy time of the year. We're about a month away from the start of college basketball. Fingers crossed for that. We'll see when the NBA and the NHL actually get going. But, you know, it's been great to have football seasons. And, you know, even with some of the COVID concerns around the NFL here from this past week, still got all the games in. So, you know, it seems like these leagues and these teams are really figuring out how to navigate uh, these pretty treacherous waters. The World Series still going on, of course, down at Globe Life Field in Arlington, Texas. Dodgers lead the Rays 3-2. to two, And quite frankly, when you look at this series, the Rays are lucky to be in it. They're lucky that this series is going to a sixth game. Dodgers are batting 264 with a 354 on base and a 506 slugging percentage here in this series. The Rays, meanwhile, batting 228 with a 288 on base, 420 slugging percentage in this series. Rays pitchers with a 593 ERA. Dodgers pitchers with a 403 ERA. The Rays have struck out in a third of their plate appearances in this series. However, the Dodgers have also struck out a lot too. 29% of their plate appearances ending in a K. But I talked about this coming into this series, and this has been a pretty important part of the equation here. The Dodgers have a 13.2% walk rate in this series. Now, in the regular season, they were about a middle-of-the-pack team, but in the playoffs coming into this series, they were at 12.4%. They've actually gone up in the World Series here with a mark of 13.2%. The Rays, their walk rate, only 8.6%. So the Dodgers here, with almost a 70-point advantage in on-base percentage, they've had more success, a lot more success, on batted balls and also too the Dodgers have 18 two out runs in this series the Rays only have eight so that's been a big part of the equation too and maybe that speaks to the higher strikeout percentage for the Rays although it's not that much higher but you know I talked about this I think on my you better you bet segment I talked about it here on the betters box last week is that when you talk about playoff series like this oftentimes it comes down to sequencing It comes down to if a team gets that two-out hit and if a team doesn't. And this is just how it goes in the playoffs. In these small sample sizes, you know, in these uh, higher variance environments, it really comes down to timing. A lot of times it comes down to timing. And the Dodgers, with more hits, with more base runners, with more walks, they've gotten those two-out hits, those two-out runs, and the Rays have struggled a little bit to do that. So, That's why we're kind of in the spot that we're in right now. And as I said, if you compare these two teams side by side, specifically on the offensive side, we probably should be done with this series already. We'll see if it ends in game six or if the Rays with Blake Snell on the bump are able to force a game seven. Both bullpens have been bad in this series. It has not been a great series for pitching. The Dodgers bullpen ERA 557. The Rays now down to a respectable 432 after five shutout innings yesterday, but it was much worse than that prior to game five. The big story here in this series is the 835 ERA from Glasnow, Morton, and Snell. We've had two below average starts from Tyler Glasnow. I don't think game one was completely his fault. I think Kevin Cash left him out there too long. Blake Snell was very good in game two. Charlie Morton was okay in game three. He wasn't good enough. Uh, but he was okay. Then Ryan Yarbrough getting the start there in game four. And 
the Dodgers starting pitchers with a 266 ERA now. So again, that's a big key to this series here is that Glass now has struggled twice. Morton wasn't overly sharp. Snell's really given the Rays their only high quality start in this series, and he'll have to do it again here in game six if the Rays want to survive. One other thing about this series that, that I probably didn't account for enough coming into it, and you know, maybe it's just because we're kind of robotic now uh, in terms of COVID-19 and you know, either limited or no fan support. This has been a very pro Dodgers crowd. Now, the Rays are, of course, used to it when they play the Yankees at home or some other teams. You've got a lot of transplants down in Florida, a lot of people that make the trip just because it's pretty cheap to fly to Florida. It's not like they're not used to this, but I I do think that to a degree, it has helped the Dodgers a little bit. And something else that I don't think I accounted for properly coming into the series is that the Dodgers had been playing at Globe Life Field already. It was a brand new ballpark you know, for this Tampa Bay team because they didn't play the Rangers during the regular season like they would have in a traditional year. So again, sight lines and just kind of the feel for the mound, the feel for the ballpark in general, stuff like that. And the Rays did talk about that a little bit earlier in the series saying, you know, it's not an excuse, but you know, it is kind of different. You know, the sight lines on fly balls get a little bit different in particular, you know, without fans in the stands and stuff like that. So I do think that there are some more intangible things that have benefited the Dodgers here in this series so far. But again, like I said, just offensively, they've been much better than Tampa Bay has been to this point. I will say that the Monday off day here is absolutely huge for the Dodgers because now Dustin May gets a day off. Now Julio Urias is available in game six. Blake Trainin had worked three straight days with Kenley Jansen working two of those, but he's been virtually unusable here in this series and throughout the playoffs. So training needed a day off. Urias now can come back in game six and be pretty well rested. You can go back to Dustin May if you want to. Although Dustin May, you know, he pitched a good inning in two thirds yesterday, but you know, he's kind of been gassed a little bit here in this short sample size of the playoffs and this 60 game season. So I don't know how much they want to rely on him. But getting Urias and training a day of rest is, I think, really significant, really substantial here for the Dodgers. And you'll get Walker Bueller in game seven if there is one. And Clayton Kershaw now with the day off would be available in relief on or on um, on Wednesday as well, if necessary. So I think the day off really benefits the Dodgers here. Now for Tampa Bay, it'll be Blake Snell in game six. And Blake Snell, the first time through the order against the Dodgers in game two, the Dodgers were 0 for 7 with five strikeouts and two walks. He started the second time through with an 0 for 7 with four strikeouts, then a walk and a two-run homer. The third time through, walk, single, and Blake Snell then got pulled for Nick Anderson. So the Dodgers struggled mightily in their first look at Blake Snell. So there is that, you know, I I think that Blake Snell, and and I like to bet on this angle sometimes too, the unfamiliar lefty angle, you know, batter versus pitcher statistics are not significant enough. Team versus pitcher statistics are not significant enough, but I think there's something to be said about seeing a left-handed arm slot that you typically don't see. And the Dodgers almost never see Blake Snell. So I'm not really surprised that Snell had success in his first start. 
I think it's harder for a guy like Glass now, even though he comes from that high release point, he can be erratic. And the Dodgers have worked a lot of walks against Glass now. Snell, a much more efficient guy, kind of a more compact left-handed delivery. So I'm not surprised that the Dodgers were 0 for their first 15, well, 0 for their first 14 against Snell with three walks. Then the home run, then the third time through, he got pulled. So I'm curious to see how this plays out for the Dodgers in game six. Do they start off better against Blake Snell? If they don't, then I'm thinking that the Dodgers are probably trailing going into the middle innings of this game. Then we'll see how the Rays try to set up the bullpen and all that kind of thing. Uh, The Rays getting a second look here at Tony Gonsolin. The Dodgers at minus 140 or so. I think that's a little bit high, a little bit uh, inflated for this elimination game. Do like the Rays a little bit from a pre-flop standpoint with Snell on the mound. Because again, he was very good the first two times through the order against the Dodgers in game two. I would expect more of the same. But after that, who knows what happens? Because to me, I think what we end up seeing here is we see Gonsolin for you know five or six batters, something like that. Then we see Urias come in because you've got Walker Bueller in game seven. I think you probably look for three to four innings out of Julio Urias here in this uh, in this game six. So I think if you want to bet this one, I think pre-flop you look at the Rays because I think Snell puts them in a good position. If he doesn't, the series is over, the game is over. But I think Snell can put them in a good spot here. Then maybe you look for a live opportunity to scalp the Dodgers, something like that. But I think this line at minus 140 is a little bit high given that I'm not super keen on Gonsolin starting the game. And I do think Snell can have some success here. Oh, I do think in game seven, Walker Bueller versus Charlie Morton. If we get one, the Dodgers do have a big advantage there. I love Charlie Morton. The raw stuff is great, but for some reason, the aging curve hit him. He was hurt in the regular season. Uh, I do like the Dodgers in a game seven. If we get to that point. Now, as far as the 60 game regular season goes, you know, how am I going to interpret this as we go forward into next year? I think it's going to be extremely difficult to evaluate what we saw. We saw seven inning double headers. We saw two teams with major COVID outbreaks that led to a lot of shuffling of the schedule. We saw pitchers with slow starts to ramp up to the season. We saw a lot of pitchers early on in the process go on the injured list because, you know, again, they went, they went into spring training, started prepping for the season, then everything totally fell apart. They all go home, you know, or maybe they stick around at the training facilities for a while to sort of see what goes on and they all go home. And, you know, you're not facing live hitting. You're not throwing to your catchers. You know, you're doing all these remote meetings and virtual meetings with staff and everything like that. It really wasn't a big surprise to me that a lot of pitchers went on the injured list early on. So I don't know how much I want to apply this 2020 season to my future MLB handicapping. You know, look, also, too, when you look at the baseball and how the baseball played this season, there were two to three-week periods where the baseball played one way, and the next two to three weeks, it would play another way. The ball was very dead over the first two weeks of the season. Then it kind of picked up a little bit. Then it sort of stabilized for a while. But, you know, everything was weird about this season. You had some teams playing home games on the road. You had all division games, uh, you know, against your own division and then the 20 interleague games. So, you know, you didn't see a whole lot of travel. You didn't see a whole lot of, you know, pitchers and hitters facing guys they were unfamiliar with. 
I just I don't think there's a whole lot that we can really take away from this season. We saw pitchers from single A and double A just go ahead and get promoted right to the big league level because they were on the taxi squad or pitchers were hurt early on. The one big takeaway that I have here is that the platoon advantage for left-handed batters against right-handed pitchers may be dead. And I've talked about that a lot this season. It's something that was a big factor, a big edge in my handicapping. It's kind of gone now. You know, pitchers are pitching differently. They're throwing more change-ups. They're throwing more off-speed and breaking stuff. We're seeing more two-seam fastballs, things like that. We're seeing a lot more shifts. I mean, at this point in time, with a platoon advantage, with a left-handed batter against a right-handed pitcher, the shift is the default setting now. So that's taken away from the ability to pull those ground balls through the hole and stuff like that. So that's been a big factor in my handicapping for a long period of time. I don't think it will be anymore. It's just, it's not as existent. It's not as prevalent as it used to be. And even to a point, it's almost a negative now. When you look at exit velocities against and BABIP and batting average on ground balls, stuff like that, it's almost a negative. So these teams that are comprised of these platoon advantages are under teams or sell teams. The small market teams that try to rely on lining up their uh, their batting orders with these platoon advantages are at an even greater disadvantage than usual. Now, oddly enough, of course, we've got one in the World Series here in the Rays, but they're there because of their pitching primarily. So I think teams like the Indians, the Pirates, the uh, you know the Marlins, teams like that that don't have any money, those are teams that will continue to struggle. I think even the A's could see themselves struggle a little bit down the line here offensively because of how things have changed. So that's really the big takeaway for me. Other than that, I'm going to start very slow next year with the baseball season. Uh, you know, who knows what it's going to look like? Who knows if we may see realignment just to get through the season, navigate the COVID waters, something like that. But also, too, I have no idea how the baseball is going to play. You know, in the playoffs, they've used kind of the spring-loaded baseball. So I, I don't know. You know, I don't know how much I'm going to take away in the next season, but I can tell you I will probably be starting very, very slowly on the baseball side of things. All right, so we transition to something completely different here and talk some college football. We'll talk about some injury updates first coming out of week eight. Uh, Graham Mertz, this is not an injury, but the Wisconsin quarterback has a likely case of COVID-19. Now, the rapid test came back positive. They're doing the uh, additional PCR test, the nasal swab, stuff like that to see if he actually has it. We have seen false positives uh, around the NFL and college football already. If Graham Mertz is in there, Wisconsin goes up one and a half points for me. If not, they go back to where they were. If Jack Cohen can play, and if they can't, they go back again. Now, here's the thing. With COVID cases in the Big Ten, with a player or a coach, It is a mandatory three-week absence once that initial test is confirmed as a positive. So Wisconsin would not have Mertz for three weeks. So keep that in mind that, you know, this would be an adjustment to their power rating without Mertz for a pretty significant period of time. And this would apply to anybody else in the Big Ten that tests positive for COVID. It would be a three-week absence. So that could be a very significant development for some teams that are out there. You think about Ohio State, If Justin Fields were to get it or something like that, that's a long period of time 
to be without your starting quarterback. So for Wisconsin here, I liked what I saw from Mertz, more upside than Cohen. But again, looks like he may have a COVID-19 absence. Troy has a quarterback injury here. Gutter Watson, no update on this one as of yet. I have not updated my Troy power rating as a result of that. However, he left with an upper body injury at the end of the first quarter in Troy's game over the weekend against Georgia State. He's completed 69.5% of his passes, 10 to 3 touchdown to interception ratio. He's been very good. Now, the backup Jacob Free played well, but he's really not Gunnar Watson here. So I would probably move Troy back two, two and a half points. Right now, I do have Troy a minus half point favorite for the game against Arkansas State. If Watson is out, I probably move Arkansas State minus one and a half, minus two, something like that. Uh, but that is a situation you want to keep an eye on there with the Troy Trojans. Also a Sunbelt quarterback injury, Grayson McCall. So the line for Coastal Carolina and Georgia Southern dropped a little bit prior to the game last Saturday. That's because Coastal quarterback Grayson McCall did not play in that game. He went out for warmups, didn't feel comfortable. They sat him out. Coastal Carolina wound up winning and covering anyway, 28-14. to 14. But McCall didn't play last week. We'll see if he's back for this week. But obviously, the market believes that he's worth at least a few points to the number. I agree with that. I did adjust Coastal Carolina down a little bit in my power ratings. I thought I was off from the market a little bit. Then noticed that Grayson McCall didn't play. So still a slight adjustment to Coastal Carolina. But that's a big reason why that line moved. Uh, with Grayson McCall not starting for Coastal Carolina last week. Huge injury for Alabama. Now, I didn't adjust my power rating as a result of this, and maybe I should have, but Jalen Waddell done for the year for Alabama. Jalen Waddell, probably a first-round pick at wide receiver. Uh, He fractured his ankle on the opening kick return against Tennessee. I don't know why your star wide receiver's got to run kicks back when you're Alabama and you got five stars just chilling on the sideline. But in any event, Waddle now out for the year for uh, Alabama. So that's a massive, massive loss for them offensively. May not really show up because they're so much better than everybody else in the SEC this year, Georgia included, as we've already seen. Uh, But once they get to the college football playoff, that could be a little bit of a problematic thing for them. Uh, Chris Olave, the wide receiver for Ohio State, out with a head injury, missed the second half. Now, Ohio State was up big. So it could have just been a precautionary measure, but he could also be in concussion protocol as Ohio State gets ready to take on Penn State this week. Buckeyes a 13-point favorite. That's right on my number uh, for that game. Injury information can be very hard to find in college football. I missed one with Sean Chambers, as I talked about at the top of the show. So you got to do some digging. I try to get my power ratings out quickly, And sometimes injury information kind of leaks out after that, or it's something that I missed. So I'm going to try and keep a better handle on that as we go forward here. Uh, But those are some of the injuries that we're watching here in college football for week nine. Bumps up in my power ratings of at least two points. Marshall and Hawaii up two and a half. Louisiana, Wake Forest, Georgia Southern, Georgia State, Missouri, UTEP, Liberty, Nevada, San Diego State all up two points. So no bumps of three or more points this week for me in my power ratings. I do have some pretty big discrepancies against the market this week, though. So maybe I should have been a little bit more aggressive in terms of some of the moves that I did make. But 
you know, again, I'm, I'm trying not to overreact here, especially with our first data points for the Big Ten and the Mountain West. Significant drops here in my power ratings for this week. As I mentioned, Wyoming down five and a half, two and a half for being higher than the market, and then three more for the Sean Chambers injury as Wyoming's offense last year without Chambers really was a lot different. And I think that, you know, the reason why they went with Chambers over Levi Williams is that they felt like Chambers gave them the best chance offensively. Now he's done for the year with a fractured fibula. So I move Wyoming down five and a half points here. And based on my line against Hawaii, and I'll talk about my overlays here in a couple of minutes, uh, based on my line against Hawaii, I have not moved Wyoming down enough or not moved Hawaii up enough. One of the two here uh, for this weekend. Sparty, Michigan State, and FIU down three and a half points here in my power ratings. I'll talk about both of those games uh, when I get to some box score notes in a few minutes time here. Virginia Tech down three points for me. I've just consistently been higher than the market on Virginia Tech. I really like this team coming into the season and they've been pretty disappointing here to this point in the year. So I finally made a pretty significant adjustment to the Hokies and who knows, I may have to make another one here as we go forward. Pitt, Tulane, Maryland, and Kansas all down two and a half points for me this week. Florida State, Tennessee, Navy, and Texas down two points for me as well. So my overlays here against the market lines. Now, I have played some of these already. Some of these I have held off on a little bit just because I'm not sure if it's, you know, just the the fact that we only have one data point for the Big Ten and the Mountain West or what. But Wyoming is plus two and a half in the market hosting Hawaii. My line is minus two and a half. Now, again, Wyoming, Laramie is the highest elevation in college football. Hawaii back-to-back games in the continental U.S. I've yet to see if they went home, but I presume that with COVID-19, they probably did go back home. So they'll have to go back home, then fly back here to the mainland to take on Wyoming this week. So that line has come down. I think I I saw some twos uh, in the market just before I started recording. So that's one where I've got an overlay here with Wyoming and Hawaii, and it's it's not a substantial overlay through key numbers or anything like that. Just a wrong team favored spot uh, based on my lines here. Michigan State's plus 25 in the market. I have it plus 21 against Michigan. I think there's a little bit of an overreaction there. I'll talk about that more in a couple of minutes here. North Carolina is a seven-point favorite on the road at Virginia. My line is 12, so I do have North Carolina with a little bit of an overlay there against Virginia. Indiana is minus 12 at Rutgers. My line is 18 in that game. So a big six-point overlay there in that one. And I did talk about it with Brad Powers last week, and I didn't make any adjustments to my home field advantage calculations, but he thought what I was doing with you know the standard one point, one and a half up to two, two and a half based on fans, he thought that was a little bit low. That could very well be low. I am seeing a lot of road games where I do have some overlays here this week on the road favorites. So maybe I'm not accounting for home field advantage enough, but you know, still, I don't know if I want to make that big significant change here. Now that we're so deep into the season, maybe I just want to keep it in mind uh, as I handicap these games. This is one that is a significant overlay for me here. Uh, Memphis, Memphis is plus six and a half or seven at Cincinnati. I have Memphis favored by a half a point here in this game. 
Now, the last two weeks, nobody's wanted any part of Cincinnati. The game against Tulsa, the line came down from four and a half to three. The line against SMU was a flipped favorite role throughout most of the week where Cincinnati was minus two and a half, got to plus two and a half on the other side. And then we saw some game day money on Cincinnati. The market wanted no part of Cincinnati. I was higher than the market on Cincinnati. They blow out SMU. And now they're laying a touchdown against Memphis. That line's too high to me. And and again, I've got Memphis favored by a half a point. That's a line I would expect to come down in the market here this week with some Memphis money coming in against Cincinnati. I triple-checked Memphis to see if there was any sort of injury if Brady White was hurt or something like that. I haven't seen it yet. So that's my biggest overlay of the week here, Memphis and Cincinnati. And I'm on the Memphis side in that one at the seven that you can still find out there in the marketplace. New Mexico and San Jose State. Uh, the line in the market is New Mexico plus nine and a half. I have it plus four and a half. New Mexico had their game canceled against Colorado State last week. Uh, San Jose State played and won, beating Air Force uh, with a pretty impressive defensive showing from the Spartans there. Uh, probably be on New Mexico in that game, but I'm going to try and wait and see if I can get a 10 for that one. UNLV's plus 11 and a half in the market. I've got it seven and a half against Nevada. Again, I think there's a little bit of an overreaction there. Nevada played well against Wyoming and won in overtime. UNLV looked really, really bad in their game against San Diego State. A little bit of a week one, well, week eight, I guess I could call it, overreaction here with UNLV and Nevada. Uh, But that's a four-point overlay for me. Iowa's a three-point favorite in the market against Northwestern. I have it six and a half. That's a game I have not played. Again, I think I'm a little bit too high on Iowa still. And I will make a significant adjustment next week if they wind up with another bad showing. Another big overlay here for me, and and this is one that I really can't wrap my head around, Texas and Oklahoma State. Texas a three-point dog in Stillwater. I have Texas a three-point favorite going to Oklahoma State. So a big six-point overlay there for me. Like it at plus three, like it at plus two and a half. Do like Texas in that game there against Oklahoma State. I know Texas really hasn't looked the part this year, but for me to be with Oklahoma State minus three, I would have to have the, the Cowboys power rated as a top 15 team, and I just don't think that they are. So that's one where I got a pretty big overlay there, Texas and Oklahoma State. So the big noteworthy overlays for me are really the Wyoming-Hawaii game is a weird one, so I'm not even going to count that. North Carolina and Virginia – Indiana and Rutgers, Memphis and Cincinnati, the biggest one, New Mexico, San Jose State, and then Texas and Oklahoma State are the ones that are the biggest overlays for me. So you know, we'll see how those lines move as we go throughout the week. But again, five of those games that I talked about, I believe five of the 10 or five of the 11 there are Big Ten or Mountain West games. And that's not particularly surprising with only one data point for all of those teams. So we'll run through some box score notes here really quick. And again, like I said, this will be a shorter show when I don't have baseball to talk about. Probably be about 20 to 25 minutes exclusively on college football. Arkansas State against Appalachian State in that Wednesday night game. Arkansas State ran 77 plays, but they only had 4.8 yards per play. And again, I have Troy a small favorite against Arkansas State this week, but we'll keep an eye on that Gunnar Watson situation at quarterback for the Trojans. Wisconsin had the ball for 43-28 against Illinois. They had 23 first downs to eight for the Illini. 
the Illini only scored on a scoop and score. That was the only way they got points. They looked really bad. I did move them down a little bit in my power ratings, although I still had that one 21 and a half. So I was a little bit higher than the market on that game. As I mentioned, FIU, I dropped FIU three and a half points here for this week. They had six first downs and 156 yards of offense against Jacksonville State. Now, if you look at the final score, it doesn't really look like complete domination for Jacksonville State, but they kicked three field goals in the red zone in that game. So FIU was offensively inept, to say the least. They got bumped down in my power ratings, and in fact, maybe not far enough because I'm still a little bit short on their game against Marshall here for week nine. We talked about it last week with Kyle Hunter. As far as regression stats go, Syracuse plus 11 in turnover margin this year. They were minus three in the game against Clemson. Still covered easily. Both teams had a defensive score in that one, uh, but Syracuse now down to plus eight in the turnover margin department. How about Nebraska? And maybe I didn't upgrade Nebraska enough in my power ratings. I gave them a one-point bump here for the game against Ohio State. But Nebraska had 5.8 yards per carry. They ran on the Buckeyes. They did a very good job moving the football. They just didn't convert into points, only scoring 17 in that game. But they moved the football on the Buckeyes' defense a little bit. So that's one where Nebraska, I may have to upgrade a little bit here as we go forward. And my line is a little bit uh, high on that Wisconsin-Nebraska game here for this week. Penn State. You know, that Penn State game, what a travesty for Nittany Lions fans. And, and credit to Indiana for finding a way to win the game. But my God, Penn State outgained Indiana 488 to 211 in that game. 27 to 16 in first downs, 250 to 41 in rushing yards. Penn State had the ball for over 40 minutes in regulation in that game. James Franklin, just a comedy of errors. Late in that game for him, uh, Indiana was probably stopped short on the two, but they got it. Uh, James Franklin is just, uh, he's a good motivator. He's not a good in-game head coach. And we saw that play out. But Penn State here, again, be very careful to upgrade Indiana too much. And, And I didn't really move Indiana a whole lot coming out of that game one way or the other. And my line is still high here against Rutgers. But they were outgained by 270 yards in that game. So keep that in mind. They won. Kudos to them for that. But they got badly outplayed in that game, to say the least. NC State minus four in turnover margin against North Carolina. They were outgained on the ground 326 to 34. So NC State really beaten up badly by North Carolina here. Again, my line's cheap, or uh, my line's 12 on North Carolina. I think the market line is cheap in that game there against Virginia. Uh, North Carolina's offense is just very, very hard to stop this season. Michigan, the Wolverines, 8.6 yards per play in that game against Minnesota, 478 yards on just 56 plays. Michigan only had the ball for almost 25 minutes in that game, had 478 yards, 49 points, 8.6 yards per play. Very impressive performance from the Wolverines. And I also think, too, what that game tells you is that Minnesota's probably not as good as last year. They lost some guys on defense. They've got Bateman as the primary weapon on offense. Uh, the offense wasn't overly efficient for Minnesota in that game. Great game plan for Michigan. Great performance for them. I didn't move them up because I had that line high, 
but uh, still very impressive from the Wolverines there. So I, I did move down Virginia Tech three points, as I mentioned, but Virginia Tech outgained Wake Forest by over 100 yards, 433 to 316. They were minus three in turnover margin, two of those interceptions in Wake Forest territory. So that game could have gone a lot different for the Hokies, uh, but still my lines were just too high on them in the market. So I had to make an adjustment. What about Kansas State, man? Kansas State special teams are a huge story. So they beat Kansas, what was it, 55 to 14? They only outgained Kansas by 61 yards. 55 to 14, the final. Kansas State had a pick six, two punt return touchdowns. Kansas fumbled a punt return. And Kansas State returned another punt to the Kansas 19. So Kansas State, two punt return touchdowns two more big special teams plays and a pick six in that game. So yeah, they won 55 to 14, but a lot of things happened on special teams. I downgraded Kansas again, two and a half points. Their special teams suck. Puka Williams opted out. Uh, Kansas is very, very bad to say the least here this season. UTEP, UTEP actually outgained the opposition in their game 374 to 329 but UTEP was minus three in turnover margin in that game against Charlotte. I do like UTEP a little bit this week uh, as they take on Louisiana Tech, I believe it is. Or no, UAB takes on Louisiana Tech. Uh, UTEP plays North Texas. That line's North Texas minus four, minus four and a half. I do like UTEP a little bit in that matchup. I've got that game much closer to a pick em. Florida State. So I like Florida State last week against Louisville. They were 14 of 41 passing in that game. Uh, Jordan Travis was 14 of 32. They brought in Chubba Purdy. Great name. 0 for 9 for him, though, in that one. Louisville had almost eight yards per carry, so just dead wrong side in that game. Uh, But, you know, Florida State, lots of issues with the passing offense there. Michigan State. So I told you I'd mention Michigan State again later in the show, and I did move them down, and it's pretty obvious that they're just not going to be a very good football team this year. But Sparty had seven turnovers in that game against Rutgers. They were minus four in turnover margin. They turned it over on downs twice. Rutgers had 38 points on 276 yards. They had three scoring drives of 26 yards or fewer. So I don't think that performance was worth upgrading Rutgers a whole lot. Michigan State's just bad. And okay, Rutgers took advantage, and that's what you're supposed to do. But they only had 276 yards and scored 38 points. Very misleading score there in that one uh, for Michigan State and Rutgers. Speaking of misleading scores, UCF outgained Tulane 689 to 340, but Tulane had 34 points on 340 yards of offense. They had a strip six. They had a nine-yard touchdown drive in the fourth quarter, so 14 gift points there for Tulane. Uh, Tulane is a team that I did downgrade here this week. And as I said, I do have Temple as a favorite uh, against Tulane. Georgia State and Troy was a really ugly game. Seven turnovers in that one. Troy had a pick six and a strip six. The Troy offense had a fumble in the red zone. They had an interception inside the Georgia State 10. They fumbled inside their own 15. That was a game that probably shouldn't shouldn't have been as high scoring as it was, uh, but you know, a lot of turnovers playing a big role in that game there between Georgia State and Troy. Kentucky, what a debacle 
for the Kentucky Wildcats over the weekend. They had 145 yards of offense against Missouri. It was 421 to 145, the yardage in that game. Missouri left a ton of points on the field. They had two short red zone field goals. They had a 21-play, 66-yard drive that took 935 off the clock, and they turned it over on downs. They had a 15-play, 61-yard drive that ended in a field goal. So Missouri left a ton of points on the field. Kentucky was awful offensively, 47 passing yards for them. Missouri played a lot better than that final score would indicate. So I did bump Missouri a little bit and did drop down Kentucky some after that game. LSU with the blowout over South Carolina, they had a pick six. They had a kick return touchdown, uh, but still just a deplorable defensive performance from South Carolina in that one. Utah State had 2.9 yards per play against Boise State. So Utah State inept offensively. They brought in Utah transfer Jason Shelley, as we talked about with Brad Powers last week. They had 92 passing yards on 27 attempts. So Utah State's offense, very bad. Boise State's defense up to the task. I did bump Boise State a little bit again here uh, in my power ratings. Fresno State. You know, Fresno State money came in on Hawaii all throughout the week in that game against Fresno State. They had 409 yards, but only 19 points. They were minus three in turnover margin. Again, I do think money does hit the board on Wyoming here. It's already kind of started, but I think Wyoming, you know, look, when you lose your starting quarterback three plays into the game, it's hard to come back from that. So I think Wyoming this week with a full week of practice for Levi Williams, I think they'll be in better shape here. I do like Wyoming a little bit. Uh, even though there is that quarterback injury situation. I think Hawaii getting propped up a little bit too much here uh, in the early going. The Northwestern and Maryland game, Northwestern took Maryland to the woodshed, outgained them 537 to 207. Maryland minus four in turnovers. Maryland looks really, really bad at the outset here. Uh, you know, Tua Tagovailoa's uh, brother Talia did not look good at all. Tyrell Pigram was terrible. Maryland looked bad. I don't like Mike Loxley. Maryland, probably a team I'll be dropping here pretty far in my power ratings. UTSA, they only won by a point against Louisiana Tech, but they outgained the Bulldogs 385 to 247. La Tech had a pick six to make that game closer than it was. I still like UTSA. I really do. I think they're a solid team here, a solid improving team under Jeff Trailer. Finally, last one here, UNLV 2.91 yards per play in Marcus Arroyo's debut against San Diego State. Uh, So Utah State and UNLV, two abominable offensive performances here uh, in their first games. And for UNLV, you know, we see that line adjusted up to 11 and a half against Nevada. That number's probably seven and a half, eight, uh, if Nevada doesn't beat Wyoming and if UNLV doesn't look that bad. So again, Possible overreaction there, although UNLV could just be that bad. So like I said, you know, uh, on Mondays, I'll just be doing college football here going forward, talking about power ratings adjustments, overlays against the market numbers for me. You can read a lot of this stuff in my power ratings article over at ATS.io. Again, I ran through a lot of information there, so you may need to listen back to this show twice. But those were all the box score notes, power ratings adjustments, and my overlays against the market lines for you here as we head into week nine. Coming up on Tuesday, we'll chat with Brian Blessing, the host of Sportsbook Radio and Vegas Hockey Hotline. We'll talk about week eight in the NFL. 
I believe the Bermuda Championship is this week's PGA Tour event. Not a strong field. We're not that far away from the Masters. So uh, we may touch on it. We may not. But we may end up talking about that golf tournament. But we will definitely talk about the NFL here for week eight. That'll do it for me. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I will talk to you again tomorrow.